0: Let's pause and pray. Father God, we've come here to worship you. And to worship you more fully and deeply, we must know you more fully and more deeply. So I pray that you would open your word to us this morning to teach us about yourself. That's all we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Having just finished the Sermon on the Mount, we turn now. To chapters 8 and 9 and I put those together because of what chapters 8 and 9 do in light of the sermon on the mount. And the sermon on the mount as it ends the astonishment washes over the people who heard it because of how Jesus spoke and that he spoke in in an uncharacteristic authority that they'd never heard anyone speak and in other words It was like the things that it was, the things that Jesus was saying were coming only directly from Him or from God Himself, which there is no higher being or power or authority that you can hear from. It doesn't mean that there are believers after that. It just means that they all recognized how He was speaking. But... Chapters 8 and 9 are important on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount because that authority of His Word is now exercised over some of these tangible, practical things that we deal with in life. And in fact, I think what you can recognize, or what we're going to come to recognize in chapters 8 and 9, is that Jesus and the authority of His Word are exercised over the powers of sin, which should give us hope for the future. That the way that He heals, the way that He uh, calls out demons, the way that He calls people to follow Him, just simply the authority of His Word over all creation and all things tells us that He does have the authority to make all things new and to destroy uh, the effects of sin on this world. So these chapters can help us look forward to an eternity under that authority in which he will once again pronounce all things good for all time. And so he starts here, as Matthew is recalling and recording these things, with a leper. And we know that leprosy, especially in the Old Testament, was a horrific and awful disease because not only is your flesh being eaten away by this disease and you're becoming this kind of monstrous creature who's in uh, agony and pain until all of your nerves are destroyed and you feel nothing, but you're also moved outside of the camp of God's people. You're not allowed to engage in fellowship and love and and human experience with other people. You're moved into what we know as kind of leper colonies, where you all are simply in this agony until the end of your days with no hope, no help. It's a really dark thing to exist in. And there were ways in the law, especially if you look in Leviticus 13 and 14, that, that the people were supposed to deal with leprosy, and that if you had leprosy, that how you were supposed to um, react to that and deal with that. And if cleansing did ever come to you, uh, they recognized it came from God. And leprosy also was, had kind of an even worse mark on it because it, Kind of signal to the people that that something was severely um, wrong or maybe even evil with the person who contracted leprosy. And really, when you think about all diseases, all infirmities, death, it all is a result of sin. Now, that doesn't mean, as we kind of see here as Jesus deals with this, that all disease is because you sinned. We even know Jesus uh, describing that in John chapter 9 about that blind man. It says it wasn't about him or his parents who sinned. It was about the glory of God. But the fact that, that disease exists and death as a result sometimes of disease is because sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. And so as a result death, and the slow decay of humanity and everything that's in the world. And to which we respond with utter distress and hopelessness, except for the fact that the gospel does exist, and the authority of Jesus and his word have come uh, to pronounce hope in the midst of these things. And he begins to show this here with this leper. So when they came down from the mountain, verse 1, Now, these first two instances of healing here with the leper and the centurion's servant, uh, one, the, the most important thing I think that you see from the leper and from the centurion is a faith in who Jesus is and therefore a trust in the authority of his word. So notice how the leopard first comes to him. That's a big no-no, all right? Especially as Jesus is recognized as, as a rabbi or a teacher or at least a holy man at this time, for the leper to bring himself out into the public and to leave that kind of leprous colony that he would have been sanctioned to, to come to Jesus makes us understand that he understood who Jesus was. Not only that, but he comes and he kneels before him. He recognizes with reverence and adoration who he's speaking to. So the fact that he would step out uh, and and risk uh, even being put to death to come to Jesus, to kneel in his presence and then to say to him, Lord, if you will, recognizing the authority of his desire to carry out what he pleases or to pronounce cleanliness. That this leper's not even afraid of making Jesus unclean, but understands that Jesus has the power to make him clean. What is that? That is faith in Christ. That's what all sinners who come to Jesus recognize, that he has the ability by the pronouncement of his word to make us clean. So this leper has this incredible faith that all people who are born again... Have. And you see it in simply verse 2. And he says, if you will, you can make me clean. In other words, you have the authority over my leprosy and over my life and over all these things in the world. And if you so desire, I will be clean. And as people of faith, we should easily recognize that that if Jesus has a desire for any specific thing in your life, it will be done. He just has to give the order, or give the announcement. So Jesus does what? Jesus could have just said, you're clean. Then it would have left him, as we're going to see with the centurion servant. But instead, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, right? As a sign for everybody around that could see this, and as for us who are reading this, that he cannot be made unclean. That you cannot destroy or infiltrate the holiness and the purity and the authority of God. And so he can touch him. And after touching him, He declares that he does have a desire to cleanse him. And when Jesus heals, you see this word a lot in all the Gospels, but even especially in Mark's, uh, immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Immediately. I mean, you think about that. Lepers uh, can get to such a degree where their their fingers and, and nose and extremities start to fall off. So, for this man to be immediately restored, there is no question what kind of power and authority Jesus has over the natural world and even the supernatural world, as you see in these chapters, to exercise. It's really important how this leper recognized Jesus' ability to make him clean. It's something that, that Peter kind of balked at when. Jesus is symbolically washing his disciples' feet in John chapter 13 and Peter's, you know, against that and he's like don't wash me that's not how this should work and Jesus replies to him like if I don't wash you then you have no share with me or part with me. In other words, if Jesus doesn't exercise his authority and his power to cleanse us then there is no cleansing that happens. There is no other place that you find release. There is no other place that you find removal of the effects of sin other than Jesus and His authority to call it. You also see this with in Exodus 3, right? With, with when Moses meets the Lord in the burning bush. And Moses is struggling with the idea of going to Pharaoh and to the people and and, leading this mass exodus out of Egypt. And then he's told to put his hand in his cloak and take it out, and it's leprous. It's white, this snow, it's leprous. And then he says, put it back in and then take it out, and then it's clean. It's all symbolic of his ability to make us clean, and not only physically. I mean, that's just the beginning. But it is to make us clean spiritually. And then in in verse 4, he tells him to follow the law. Something he says back in chapter 5 and verse 19, that he came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. And anybody who teaches anyone to relax the law or to not obey it is least in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, Look, go do what is commanded of you in the law, but don't say anything to anyone. If someone could immediately heal like this, that's going to draw a crowd, isn't it? But why? Just because they can heal. It's not, it's not wrong to want healing. But these people who are coming to Jesus and being healed are first exemplifying an understanding of who he is. And the leper knows who Jesus is before he heals him. And he he walks in that. He lives in that. He trusts in that. And he even says kind of in this polite way, if, if it's your will, if it's your desire to do this, then you can do it. What this kind of, some commentators call this the, the messianic secret, what Jesus is doing when he tells people not to say anything to anyone, is he's, he's not trying to uh, gather a crowd for the sake of marveling at his power over these things. He's, he's getting his lost sheep, he's calling them. And he's pointing them to an even greater reality than temporary healing. He's pointing them to eternal healing and eternal restoration to relationship with God, which he will accomplish by his suffering. And at that point in time, who's going to follow him? You're going to come to Jesus, of course, if he's going to heal you and make everything okay, but when you see him go to the cross and be ridiculed and be murdered in that way and be stripped of dignity and and humiliated and and shamed, are those crowds going to follow that Lord? I mean, who's not going to follow somebody who's going to kind of give them everything and make everything better? But when he calls to follow him on his road of suffering, very few find that narrow way. So now we get to this centurion, and this is one of my favorite parts of Matthew's gospel because the faith displayed here is utterly amazing. So much so that Jesus is said to marvel at this. Now, that's not to say that Jesus didn't already know the faith of the centurion. It's not to say that. Jesus doesn't understand all men and what's in all men. But it is simply to recognize that in, on a human level, it is truly amazing to see this come from a Roman soldier. And that's what's being communicated here. So when he'd enter, entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Centurion is a Roman uh, general in charge of a hundred soldiers. And they had specific areas of guard that they were over. So this is not even simply a soldier. This is not a servant. This is a very important man in the Roman army. And in Luke's gospel, he tells the same account. And in that account, it is representatives of the centurion that come for him. And I want to just give a word of there's not a contradiction there. In the ancient world, um, servants could speak on behalf of their uh, representative or of their authority figure. And it be the same as that figure actually coming and speaking to them. So the same thing is happening here. The centurion is coming by way or by word of these servants, and he is the one giving the words to speak. He's the one giving the request of his servant that's at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. And again, to approach Jesus from a Roman perspective as a Jewish uh, rabbi, already in itself is incredible. Jew and Gentile relationships were cold at best and most hateful in reality. They were enemies, natural enemies. But in verse 7, Jesus says, I will come and heal him. Nobody said anything about inviting him to go touch the paralytic. Jesus takes the initiative to say, I'll come to the house to heal him. Now, what I think that Jesus is doing, because he knows all things, is that he is drawing out the faith of what he knows the centurion has in him. So, the centurion replies in verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, I think he says that for two reasons. Number one, for a Jew to go into a Gentile house makes that Jew unclean. Jesus knows that. The centurion knows that. And so he's like, look, I'm not worthy. I don't want that to be a part of this. But also... He begins his reply with Lord. With a recognition of his authority to speak and to teach. And maybe even a recognition of his deity as the Lord God. And so simply as a man, he's not worthy for the Lord to come under his roof. His house is truly an unclean place. He he puts himself under the lordship of Jesus, which is not in the psyche, naturally, of Roman soldiers in regards to Jewish men. But for this centurion, it is. Because he has faith. And he says, only say the word, and my servant will be healed. I don't know how the centurion came to this um, knowledge and faith in Jesus. I don't know what he had heard or if he had followed this (coughs) Sermon on the Mount and followed the um, teaching of of Jesus. I don't know how he came to this understanding, but all we're told is that he did. So much so that he's like the leper. Lord, Just if you want to do it, it's done. And he explains that. He explains why he said that. Verse 9, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus' response in verse 10, when he heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel, or uh, not even in Israel, Have I found such faith? Whoa. Verse 9 and verse 10 are huge. Let's start with the centurion's explanation for why he said Jesus could just pronounce his servant healed and he'd be healed. He says, I too am a man under authority. So he is comparing Jesus to himself both being under some sort of authority. Now what is that? In John chapter 5, verse 19, John 12, verse 49 through 50, Jesus communicates to us that he does what he, he sees the Father doing and says only what has been told him from the Father, that in his humanity and mission here on earth, he places himself in obedience to God. We, we hear that in Philippians 2, while he is also God at the same time, and he places himself under that that lordship or underneath his father and does and says only what he says. And somehow the centurion recognizes that Jesus' authority comes purely and strictly from the father. Number two, he compares his um, authority by the power of his word to Jesus' authority by the power of his word. And he's talking here about Jesus being able to speak authority over disease caused by sin, either outside of that servant or inside of that servant. What's he doing there? He's recognizing Jesus as the creator with authority over his own creation. That is why you have this response from Jesus that says, nobody in Israel has this type of faith. What I think he's saying, there is nobody in Israel understands who I am at this point except for this guy. And he's a Roman general. It's it's mind-blowing. Because nobody outside of the Jews belongs in the kingdom of God, do they? Well, Jesus says, verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus just declared that not only has he come for uh, those who are his in Israel, But he's come for the Gentiles. And in fact, there are lots of Jews who will not be in the kingdom of heaven because they reject what this centurion has not rejected. They don't understand what this centurion has understood. And an entrance into the kingdom of heaven is based solely by faith alone in Christ alone. Based on God's word alone alone, to God's glory alone. And anybody who recognizes that is going to recline at table at that great banquet, that marriage uh, supper of the lamb and his bride, the church, with the great patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that's only for the Jews. Jesus says no. A lot of you won't be there. And we see this today. A great rejection by the Jewish people of the Messiah who has come. The Messiah that they read about and wait for, they missed it. But there's the Gentiles that aren't going to miss it. And Paul's whole ministry is based on his going to the Gentiles with the gospel, isn't it? And so, to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed, and the servant was healed at that very moment. So it's an astonishing revelation of knowledge of Jesus as the Word made flesh, the Creator come to dwell with His people. And, and here is the only gospel response from humanity. Humble, unworthy submission, as you cry out for cleansing that only He can provide by the pronouncement of His Word, that's the response to the gospel that all born again believers have experienced. That's the only way to respond positively to the gospel, and the centurion does that. Finally, he uh, in this section we're looking at today he moves. Into Peter's dwelling here, enters Peter's house, saw his mother in law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. So Peter had kindly taken in his mother-in-law into his home, and she was sick, and Jesus compassionately and caringly touched her hand, cleansing her of the effects that sin were having on her at the time, and what's her response? Service to her Lord, to her King, to her Master. And then certainly word had spread quickly. If somebody is healing people immediately, even with the pronouncement of a word, people are going to show up. And Jesus always has compassion on the crowds because he loves people. And so those oppressed by demons, he casts them out with the word because he has authority over all the spiritual realm and the earthly realm of all existence. And so he can tell them to leave and tell them where to go and he can destroy them, we see this throughout the Gospels, that they are afraid of him, and then he healed all who were sick. So there are some, even locally, who would say that sickness and handicap, um, inabilities are caused by demon oppression. Well, Jesus here separates the two. And I think the Gospels make it very clear that that is not the case. That sickness is a result of sin, and it can have effects on you either from the outside, other people's sin on you, or from the inside. Maybe your sin does cause sickness, but that is not uh, always the case, and it's not always because you were oppressed by a demon. That may be something totally different. Whatever the case may be, Those things Jesus has compassion on. And by the power of His Word, He heals and sets free. And look, verse 17, this is to fulfill prophecy. They are to recognize the Messiah has come in this way. And so, again, when Matthew references an Old Testament um, verse or phrase, he wants you to go back and read it. And certainly this is one of the big ones, right? In Isaiah 53, you have the suffering servant. In other words, you have a detailed description of what Jesus will look like and what he will experience on our behalf. In other words, he's taking our illnesses and bearing our diseases, Isaiah 53, 3, verse 6, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now griefs there in the Hebrew does include disease and sin. All those things caused or part of a fallen World, Jesus is taking those things and He's destroying them. He carries our sorrows. He knows what it means. Uh, He sympathizes with the plight of humanity. Yet, in His persecution, in His arrest, in His trial, in His crucifixion, we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But why was that? Verse 5 of Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what sin has caused and what sin does, Jesus is taking that upon Himself and will remove the effects of that from His people for all time, and that we look to Him for. Namely, the sin that so wreaks havoc in our own hearts and our own lives and in this world signals that we are under the judgment of God. Jesus takes the eternal judgment of God for His people and sets them free from that to where we are looking forward to the eternal blessing of God, free from the effects of sin, free from such words of uh, grief, sorrow, iniquity, transgression, death. He removes that by the authority imparted to Him as He is one with His Father. Come to earth as a man to bear with us and to remove those things from us. Psalm 103.3, starting in verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love. In other words, our sin and the effects of it seen in this world with disease are synonymous. And everything that you see wrong and experience wrong with this world and with your life are going to be destroyed and removed by the power of God's word who is Jesus himself. So it brings us to the cross where he finally accomplishes the great cleansing, the great bearing of our iniquities and our diseases. And by his word, he pronounces what? It is finished. And he yields up his spirit. And he leads forth the heavenly host And captives to the right hand of the Father. And promises to come and bring us where He is. So I would close today by asking you to take seriously the authority of God's Word. And to respond in faith as is entirely appropriate and illustrated by this leper and this centurion. And then to continue forth in that response by faith to his word and all that he reveals in it. So respond to him now and then we'll stand and sing.